Hey there, conductors. If you've ever felt that you're not quite sure what to do next when you're studying a score, maybe you don't even know where to start with a difficult piece. Maybe you study one piece too much and then you realize at the first rehearsal that you don't know another one well enough. Or maybe you're a new conductor and you don't know what score study is. I'm excited to share that I'm finally publishing and sharing my score study checklist. I've been refining this for 12 years now, and I'm so excited to share it. It is going to walk you through my structure, my process to make sure that I learn every score that I need to learn well enough and so that nothing falls through the cracks. So it covers everything that you need to know. There's a link in the show notes. Go ahead and click it, sign up, and you'll get that score study checklist sent right to your email. You'll also get access to an eight-minute video of me explaining what each section is and how I use it to organize all the music that I need to learn. It's only eight minutes, so it's not going to take you a whole hour to learn how to study better, how to put up a process for your score study and how to make sure that nothing is falling through the cracks. So again, click the link in the show notes, and I hope to see you soon. Now, please enjoy this episode of Podium Time. Welcome to Podium Time, the podcast for conductors and students. You know, if you you want the audience to know the excitement of being at the premiere of a Mahler symphony, you have to give them works of similar scope and ambition and communicative power. I think we can be more ambitious in our own time about the impact we want our commissioning and our support of new music to have. This must have been what it was like in 1937 to hear Shostakovich five for the first time because I feel like this music embodies what it feels like to be alive now. Hi there, everybody. This is your host, Jeremy DeQuabus, welcoming you to Podium Time and to this interview that I am so, so, so excited to finally be sharing with you. Today we're talking with Kenneth Woods, Artistic Director of the English Symphony Orchestra, Colorado Mahlerfest, and the Elgar Festival. And we actually recorded this interview back in 2019 in preparation for the 2020 Mahler Fest last May. Unfortunately, that didn't end up happening, so we kept holding on to it and holding on to it. And Ken and I have been talking for a bit, and we finally decided to release it for you now. And it is just a fantastic interview. We're going to be talking about Mahler Fest and how it's evolved as Mahler's reputation has evolved, how we can celebrate and expand our understanding of Mahler and his music. Um, We're also talking about the English Symphony Orchestra's 21st Century Symphony Project and how they and Ken are helping bring new, large, and significant works into the world, plus how we can develop a deeper understanding of composers by comparing how they revise their music. It's a really fascinating discussion. Mahlerfest is on live this August 24 through 28 in Boulder with their regular symposia lectures and chamber concerts centered around this year Mahler's Fifth Symphony and the premiere of Philip Sawyer's Fifth Symphony, another fifth in five movements, which was written during the pandemic. You can learn more at mahlerfest.org and the link is in the show notes below. As well, I'd like to announce that the English Symphony Orchestra has launched a digital service starting at just £5 a month that includes exclusive content for those donors such as archival material, additional performances, interviews, digital receptions, meet and greets, and behind-the-scenes access, plus opportunities to watch the ESO rehearsing or recording live 
with Ken. You can find out more about that at eso.co.uk slash digital. That link will also be in the show notes. And then, as always, I'd like to thank our supporters on Patreon for helping keep the show running for just as little as $1 a month. You can find out about that, guess where, in the show notes below. Now, without further ado, here is the long-awaited but timeless interview with Kenneth Woods. Alrighty, so um, I actually just wanted to start off. If you would um, tell us your opinion on shorts. <laughs> <laughs> shorts are for vacation, and they're on vacation. And they're, um, <clears throat> as I think probably uh, you will have heard before, I'm not in favor of them on the podium. Yes. <laughs> someone who's spent a fair chunk of my life in the cello section looking up at conductor's legs. Uh, you don't want to see too much in that. that I liked so. your description of the, what was it? Cheesy feet as well. Oh gosh. Yeah. <laughs> Sandals. It's the, it's the worst, absolute worst. There was a well known American sort of pedagogue slash maestro who I played for, for a couple of summers who always conducted in sandals. And he always seemed to have a mixture of sort of bandages and, and yeah. growths and injuries on the feet. <laughs> you just don't want to see that when you're trying to play Brahms. No. <laughs> yeah. Keep it covered. <laughs> yeah, always something under the toenails. Ew. Yeah, yeah, I just... <laughs> it's, it's not right, you know, and if they go in a little yellow or something, it's just, it, it, it's wrong. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, so that's, that's, that's from your, from your blog that I found out, um, clearly I actually, I found your blog years ago, I think, you know what it was, um, in 2016, Luke and I did the Bard Conductors Institute and we were having, we were prepping Mahler five. And so I think I was looking at editions and I found a post of yours from, from way back then. And I, I decided yeah. what edition to get. I think I got the, the big blue Peters edition, um, but anyway, yeah. Um, Interestingly and, enough, the uh, that's a wonderful edition, mm-hmm. uh, very lovingly done. Uh, but it looks like it's going to have to be replaced pretty soon. Oh, already? Uh, yeah. Well, uh, immediately after they published it, they found another source. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, you know, the, this is how these things go. Uh, and of course, the question that the Mala Gesellschaft is, you know. It, does it make any sense to do it again so so quickly? Uh, but now it's it's a competitive business now. You know, for most of the last sixty years or so, all critical editions of Mahler were published by the Gesellschaft. Uh, there were the Eulenberg scores, which were sort of edited with some prefaces and stuff. But uh, if you wanted, you know, something that was really of urtext quality, you went to their editions. But now you have Breitkopf running their own completely separate edition, not without some controversy, but it does mean that the Gesellschaft is going to be less likely to sit on any discoveries for years and years and years, yeah. lest uh, someone else make the same discovery. <laughs> so are they going to recall the scores and they'll they'll just send me the update? <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't you wish? Yeah. No, no, no. <clears throat> no every time there's a, a new discovery, I think the, the price of the next edition goes up by 50 bucks. Oh, of course. Of course. Yeah. Um, and so you are, you're conductor of the, is it English Chamber Orchestra? Is that right? The English and Symphony Orchestra. English it's Symphony very, Orchestra. It's an incredibly confusing situation. Um, my orchestra has two names. Okay. I, I, I think it's maybe the only one in the world that does because it was founded as the English String Orchestra. Okay. Um, and uh, shortly after it was founded, 
my predecessor and his colleagues realized that the string orchestra repertoire is not sufficiently large and diverse to keep a professional orchestra going full time. So they expanded into the English symphony orchestra, but they've always kept those two threads going. Oh, okay. And so, so that when, when we perform or record as a string orchestra, we're still called English string orchestra most of the time. But then it gets even more confusing because the certain record labels we record for uh, who only want one name, I, which I actually am completely sympathetic with. So, <laughs> for instance, our recordings on the AV label, uh, whether it's string orchestra or symphony orchestra, it's always English symphony orchestra. Okay. Uh, but the one thing we are not is uh, the English chamber orchestra, which okay. is a separate organization who I have worked with and recorded with, and they're absolutely wonderful. But uh, English chamber orchestra is very much a London band okay. by Quinn Ballady, who was a well-known British freelance violist uh, back in the early 60s and became the orchestra of choice for Daniel Barenboim and his youthful prime and uh, Benjamin Britten and was, you know, one of the more recorded orchestras in the world. So they're the one English group where all the others, uh, <laughs> English string orchestra, English symphony orchestra, this month with the English Santa orchestra. When we mm, do Halloween, it's the English scream orchestra. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> whatever as long as you, as long as it stays ESO, then you can, you can it, it, put whatever you want. Yeah. We don't have to change the logo that way. So that's fine. <laughs> yeah. And then also, um, Mahlerfest in, um, in Boulder, right? Yeah. It must be uh, my fourth year now coming up, uh, fifth year with Colorado Mahlerfest. Uh, which has been just an absolute joy. Uh, I've been a Mahler nut since forever. And also someone who's very interested in understanding Mahler beyond the notes on the page. Mm -hmm. And uh, Mahlerfest has always had a very strong ethos in both performance and scholarship. They've had pretty much every Mahler scholar of any significance of the last 30 years has spoken there, Donald Mitchell, Henri-Louis de Lagrange, and just about everyone else you can think of. Um, so when they reached out to me after Robert Olson retired and asked if I'd be interested, it was, you know, uh, just, it's like being offered a lifetime supply of free beer. You know, you can't really believe it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, it, it's a real joy. And we're now kind of getting in to my tenure, I think far enough that, uh, you know, it's much more the kind of festival that I think it needs to be for today. And, uh, you know, I feel very at home there and have a really strong team around me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was, um, I was so, so sad. I didn't get a chance to come up this, this past summer. Um, I'm in, I'm in Denver, so I'm, I'm pretty close by. Um, but yeah, you guys do, you know, the concerts, the chamber concerts, uh, uh, all the talks and symposia it's you know it's so much i'm gonna go in this coming summer <laughs> well I, I i hope so um the world has changed a surprising amount since robert olson founded the festival so we're coming into our 33rd year oh wow i didn't realize it was that that old yeah and um one of the reasons he started the festival he was uh on the conducting faculty at boulder at, at the time uh, was that he'd been there for a few years, and in that time there had been no performances of Mahler anywhere in the Rocky Mountain region. You know, oh, yeah. not just in Boulder, but you know, there was no Mahler in most of Wyoming, most of Colorado, anywhere around there. Um, so he set up the festival with the idea of doing two performances a year of a Mahler symphony, and then events around it. And that's been a wonderfully successful template. But of course. 
30 years in now, I mean, there's like a Mahler symphony every other day somewhere yeah. around, around there. And we end up, uh, we've had clashes of uh, Mahler symphonies with the Colorado symphony on the same day. Two years oh God, ago. really? Yeah. We were doing Mahler 10 as they were doing Mahler three. Um, we've had uh, another orchestra in Boulder do Mahler seven just a month before we did it. You know, it, it's absolutely crazy. So Mahler, is no longer an obscure composer. He was an obscure composer when I was uh, first discovering him. I mean, it was very much kind of a, like, hey, have you heard of Mahler? You yeah. know, and if you found someone who knew Mahler, that was like, you know, a fellow traveler, someone who was really into the hardcore weird stuff. Uh, he's not He's not weird. He's not hardcore anymore. But he's still amazing, and the music is still amazing. So instead of using the festival to try and uh, – advocate for Mahler. I hope that argument's been more or less won by now. Mahler becomes the center of a wheel with many spokes. And we program around whatever Mahler symphony we're doing. We try to explore what themes, uh, what ideas, what other repertoire either influenced Mahler or was influenced by Mahler. Um, so uh, I think it's a much different festival now than it was during Bob's time, because I think the, the programming has had to become more diverse and more wide ranging. This year we're really making the festival more interdisciplinary. Uh, we're branching out into visual art. Uh, we're having a talk on Mahler's okay. uh, relationship to the sort of Gesamtkunstwerk mm -hmm. uh, idea that originates with Wagner of bringing all the art forms together. And so we've got a, a cultural historian who's gonna come and talk about things like the scene design of Mahler's Wagner productions in Vienna. Um, we're doing a contemporary work by Philip Sawyers, which is inspired by the paintings of Kandinsky. We're having a, an art project where people in the community will paint in response to Mahler's music. And we're making our first foray into opera. We're gonna do act one of Die Valkyra in a parking garage. <laughs> All right, why the, why the parking garage? Well, um, I, I, I like the idea of classical music as revolutionary and subversive and getting out of the confines of the concert hall when it's appropriate to do so. And if we can make something as uh, potentially conservative as a Wagner opera, which was never intended to be conservative, uh, as, I don't know, immediate and uh, real as possible, I think that will be great. Um, Boulder is not a city that's uh, well endowed with performance spaces either. So, you know, we've looked hard for uh, funky, interesting venues, you know, things like warehouses or anything that just has a bit of character and atmosphere. And there's really nothing there. Um, I hate to say it. Uh, there is a, a group in London called the Multi-Story Orchestra, which does all their concerts in a parking garage in London. And uh, so my hat's off to them as a, a, you know, a bit of an inspiration for our sort of underground Wagner project. Um, and I, th I think it'll be really exciting for people. You know, it will be uh, the parking garage by its nature of having lots of hard surfaces. I think it'll have a, a reasonably good and interesting acoustic uh, because of the nature of the ceilings and everything. I think people will feel close to the music and we're doing it with a an orchestra of about 30 players in a, in a very good reduction uh by a british uh orchestrator named francis griffin 
so it'll have a kind of chamber music vibe, although lots mm. of oomph and energy. And I think what people will particularly get that they wouldn't normally get is um, just the sheer visceral thrill of hearing a Wagnerian voice in a reasonably small space. That's what, yeah, I was about to say that. It's uh, and, be very uh, loud. <laughs> it's, it, it, it's awe-inspiring. We, we yeah. did the, the piece with the ESO, with the same three soloists last year, and it's just... There is nothing more exciting than yeah. standing next to a Wagnerian held in tenor <laughs> in full Siegbund mode. It's just amazing. And I think people will be blown away. And of course, most of the time when you hear a great held in tenor, you know, like a Stuart Skelton or someone like that, you know, it's in the Met. It's in a huge yeah. space and you're miles away. Uh, I think when people hear Brennan, who's got a voice of similar depth and power and character, up close and personal in the 29th street parking garage their their minds will be blown forever they may never recover i don't know yeah the parking garage is an is a great venue it's they're so you know they're so resonant um, yeah you know we would go around and like sing or, or play in the parking garage and it's so you know it's it's loud you can hear it all throughout and i'm is are people going to be standing sitting i'm We'll have chairs, uh, chairs yeah. and uh, you know we'll, we'll try to make it as comfortable as we can. Uh, the the folks who own the facility are helping sponsor the concert, so we'll have proper lighting and, and yeah. staging, and and try to make it you know as suitable an atmosphere for the music as we can. As you can imagine, there's some cautious voices who are concerned. Yeah. You know, why on earth would we you know give up you know an air conditioned place with walls <laughs> and a roof? to hear Wagner in a parking garage, but in the uh, summer, in the summer, but I think, uh, and, and it's a bit of a risk. I mean, Ballerfest is funny because it's always the week following mother's day in May. Um, and I come there from six months of solid rain in the UK and <laughs> for the eight days or so that I'm usually there, it's perfect seven days. Mm-hmm. And then we get, sort of 10 inches of snow or something yeah. on Thursday night and almost have to cancel a rehearsal or something. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's a bit of a, of a risk, but you know, we've got a, 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 a secondary venue lined up if, okay. if the snow comes in. <laughs> yeah. So, so one of the questions actually that, that our, our friend um, wanted me to ask was, and I'll, I'll use his wording um, was ask him why he does Mahler fest. Why go halfway around the world for a small festival, not in a major metropolitan area. I hope maybe I've uh, hinted at some of the answers. Yeah, to that. yeah. You know, um, there's um, something special that happens at the culmination of Mahler Fest, which I'm just sort of beginning to understand a bit more fully, um, which is that doing a concert, which is the end product of an immersion for everyone. Mm-hmm that is both social and musical that's underpinned by things like talks and analysis of the works, all of that, that people can dip into as deeply or as shallowly as they want to. When you finally get to the concert, there's a kind of special energy around it that really is extraordinary. I'd like to think every year the standard of the performances is going up bit by bit and Mm. the, the, the team is getting stronger every year but every year even from the very first year those concerts have really felt like a huge event and uh in that sense it's very different from doing even a very high profile concert a very exciting concert um where so often 
it's the opposite. You're trying to make something happen um, with a minimum of rehearsal time and under tremendous pressure with lots of other things going on where you're only together with a group for a very limited period of time. I mean, yeah. Very often, you know, I do a lot of recording work and the, you know, you might be meeting an orchestra for the very first time and have the red light on in 15 minutes from the start of the rehearsal. Yeah. Uh, you know, Mahlerfest is a chance to reconnect to what it's like to really immerse yourself in a piece for a week with, with good colleagues who are there for exactly the same reason. And I think that's kind of the, the biggest appeal for me. Mm-hmm. Well, and then, and then for the week, you know, you're, you're adding all this context around the capstone around the the top of the of the festival and i think that you know that's that's great not just for the audience but for the musicians also to to be around that for so long well absolutely and over the course of the week the delineation between the musicians conductor audience scholars gets blurrier and blurrier i mean you get the scholars who are talking in the Saturday symposium come to the chamber music concerts. They go drinking with the musicians. We, all our rehearsals are open. So as the week goes on, we get more and more of the sort of hardcore Mahler fans who come along to those um, and see how the orchestra is progressing, see what I'm talking about. Then they come to the symposium on the Saturday. They see what the scholars have to say about the music. Maybe the musicians come along or maybe they've just had a interesting conversation in the pub. You know, you, you see a, uh, you know, principal wind player talking to a well-known musicologist about stylization of a rhythm or folk music roots yeah. or something. And it all feeds into this sort of creative foment where we all feel like we're discovering new things in the music kind of in community with each other. Um, and that's, that's, you know, extremely groovy. Yeah. <laughs> is there a particular, is there a particular performance that you, uh, would, you would say, uh, is the pinnacle example of all those things coming together that you've experienced over the last few years? Be hard to pick one because I'm very conscious that, you know, uh, every concert is, um, you know, a mixture of success and failure. And there's always things you go back and change. Uh, I think certainly the, the performances of Mahler's 10th symphony were spiritually very, very special. Um, I think that work, is uh, a work of particularly intense and, and deep emotion and, and some really special things happened in the course of that performance and having, having David Matthews around for the week who would help prepare the, the cook edition that we were playing from uh, was exceptionally inspirational. And I the talks that week were really special too. We had Jerry Brooke uh, give a talk about how he was, able to take the BBC recording of the first performance of the 10th to Alma Mahler's house mm-hmm. and play it to her. I mean, you know, they would be really in the presence of living history with yeah. uh, people who aren't going to be around forever, you know, and, and then to go on stage and play the work that was, that was very special. Um, and certainly this year's uh, performance of, of the first symphony was, was really exciting and special in lots of different ways too. The orchestra's changed a lot in the two years between Mahler mm-hmm. 10 and Mahler one, hmm. the the biggest thing we've done is uh, added a new, sort of new tier in the festival called Festival Artists. Um, I think during Robert's time, that's Bob Olson, my my predecessor, very much he was the the heart, soul, face, everything of the festival. He was Colorado Mahler Fest. Yeah. Um, and just like I think maybe Mahler isn't enough to 
support a festival on his own anymore, that he needs to have other composers and other works and other art forms around his music. Um, I think it's the same. You know, I don't, I don't know that any conductor this side of Dudamel is charismatic enough <laughs> to carry a festival on their shoulders anymore. Um, so, and I, I wanted to also have a team around who I could learn from and work with and who could help me develop the orchestra. So the festival artists are there as principal players in the orchestra who underpin our chamber music projects. They work together with each other. They work together with fellows, sort of young, early career professional players who play chamber music with them in the course of the weeks. And they, they lead the sections and lead sectionals and, and work with people of you know varying levels of, of experience uh, throughout the week. So I think particularly by this past year when we did the, the first symphony, the, that had embedded much more deeply. And so the orchestra had a much you know, sort of different level of virtuosity and experience. You know, when you've got world-class professional players in many of the uh, principal sections, you know, sharing their experience and their knowledge throughout the week. Um, that felt like a real arrival this spring. So I would say you know, all, all of them have been incredibly special, but, but those two were, were particularly exciting in different ways. Mm-hmm. And do you go through one symphony each year? Is that right? Yeah. In Bob's early tenure, it went straight through by number, uh, with the idea also being to do everything of Mahler. So things like Das Klag and Lead, all the song cycles, um, and to try and do things that were uh, a little bit different. So, uh, you know, they did the Joseph Wheeler completion of Mahler 10, which was a world premiere. Um, as Bob neared the end of his tenure, uh, for a variety of reasons, he started not going in order. I think it started with they were trying to get Tom Hampson to come and sing uh, and he was only free in a particular year. So they had to sort of jump to Das Lied von der Erde and rearrange everything. So I came in in the midst of Bob's last cycle, and we sort of tidied that up in a, a random order over my first three years. We did seven, ten, and Das Lied. And boy, I can't think of three more difficult pieces to start <laughs> a, a new job with. I mean, yeah. I, um, after that, you know, we, we started again with one at the beginning of a new cycle, and it was just like, oh gosh, you know, it, it's not an accidental on every note for the first time in, in years. So yeah. that was a bit of a relief. And now we'll go through more or less in order. Um, and one of the things that was also exciting about the first symphony this past year was uh, we did the first performance of Breikoff and Herdel's new critical edition of the first symphony which I think is a, is a wonderful contribution to Mahler scholarship mm-hmm. and Breitkopf are very keen to support us. So uh, yeah. what were, what were some of the new things in the, um, in the first symphony? Um, there was a slightly more nuanced approach to what Mahler considered definitive and not definitive. Okay. Um, so if you look at the earlier editions of the first symphony, um, there's comparatively little expressive marking things like bowing and stuff. Okay. Uh, the Sander Wilkins edition from the 1990s, which was the last one that the Gesellschaft did. Um, he did a fantastic job of unearthing lots and lots of bowings from Mahler's various sets. Um, and 
Christian Rudolf Riedel, who did the new edition, just kind of went through looking at what Mahler actually put in the last set of definitive materials after the New York performance, um, and only those. Um, so it it's, it's a, doesn't have quite as much in it in that sense, but it's a little clearer what Mahler thought was you know, the text that he wanted saved for posterity. And it's very much the New York version. Mm. Uh, it's not attempting to be a sort of synthesis of different stages uh, of, of work, but, but really looking at the sort of, you know, what was the last version of the piece before it uh, came out. The other thing that it doesn't sound quite as sexy as, as <laughs> the musicological side of it is that it's just incredibly beautifully printed and, and yeah. presented and very user-friendly, uh, which with all the goodwill in the world, some of the old Gesellschaft materials were hard to read and hard to use and in, in difficult sized formats and stuff. Yeah. So, uh, you know, this is really, you know, beautiful luxury production values, uh, easy to read, easy to use, uh, beautiful paper. Everything about them is, is really great. Yeah, I'm sure the orchestra appreciated the new printing. Oh, they did, yeah. Um, I mean, you know, it's it's a bit of a two-edged sword for someone like me who has his own set of bowed-up Mahler one parts sitting in his library. You know, I can't use those anymore. You know, <laughs> now, now that I've tasted that bright cough magic, yeah. you know, the old ones are going to have to sit there and all the hours and dollars that went into bowing them up and marking them and correcting them. You know, his take, taking your Calma set and putting in all the corrections and uh, adjustments that you want is uh, it's a formidable task. But uh, yeah, we we did it again much quicker this time in getting all the Boeings into the break off parts. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, so the other question that I was that I was given by the same person is yeah. to ask about shaving your beard for Mahlerfest. Oh my goodness, I'm getting all sorts of Mahlerfest <laughs> clues here. Um, yeah, this was uh, suggested by one of our fundraising team. We have our annual fundraiser running on now. And we were, the question is, what could we do to incentivize people mm -hmm. to, to give more than they have done in, in past years? So yeah, the question was whether Ethan Hacked, my colleague, who's our executive director and I, uh, would shave off our beards if we had a certain amount of money come in. Or I suggested, well, you know, maybe we could save the beard, you know, would people oh, yeah. give more money to save the beard? <laughs> um, and, uh, but it, it looks like uh, at the moment it's, it's, it's gone for, for shave the beard. Okay. Um, and uh, this, this, I did shave the beard off a couple summers ago. I, you know, I've sort of finished my last concert of the year and it was blazing hot. And I thought, well, you know, I'll just shave it off for the summer. So I, I, I did. And my daughter came home from school and just laughed at me for like 45 <laughs> minutes. So I'm bracing myself for, for more of that. You know, she was about seven or six at the time. Um, I don't think, I don't think she's going to go any easy on me this time. So, yeah. uh, but you know, anything in the service of, of art, we got, you know, <laughs> I mean, to be brutally honest, you know, um, the festival's got to raise more money if it's going to survive and thrive in, in the future. Yeah. Um, the sort of community goodwill volunteer spirit that sustained lots of artistic organizations for, for a long time. Uh, people are getting busier all the time and people's work lives, their sort of work to free time balance has changed a lot, which means nonprofits are, 
which always depended on boards and teams of volunteers in addition to any paid staff to, to run them. More, much more so than 20 years ago, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, people who are in their working life with kids just don't have the time yeah. to, to support those organizations as they would have in the 80s or 90s. And that means you're, you're depending on people who are retired. And it's a, it's a smaller group of, of people. Um, and, uh, and you run the risk then that you're cut off from generations of support. So, you know, we've got to, in some ways, gently professionalize the organization, resource it a little bit more robustly. Um, because ultimately, you know, the festival is there for the benefit of the audience. Mm-hmm. And we got to make sure we're delivering something to them that's really engaging and exciting, unforgettable. Um, and I suppose that's the other thing for me, just in terms of artistic ambition, is that <clears throat> I didn't want it just to be a couple of fantastic orchestra concerts at the end of the week, but a yeah. proper festival with a local footprint where w- one feels like something's going on every mm-hmm. day and that all of those uh, activities are exciting. Uh, but, you know, the simple act of, marketing 10 concerts instead of two, you know, is, is a much bigger undertaking. Yeah. 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 So, so does the community um, support Mahler Fest as far as like, you know, having been there, as you said 33 years, um, yeah. ha- as far as the community is concerned, does it draw people who might not typically go to, to a concert hall to hear Mahler just because it's something going on in their town? Um. That's a very complicated question, actually, in the case of, <laughs> of, of Mahlerfest. Um, because it was always very high-minded and very niche, I think in some ways it was more known and celebrated and recognized for what was special about it internationally than it maybe was hmm. locally. Yeah, um, It used to be an orchestra of Bob Olson's friends, colleagues, former pupils, buddies, whatever. And the membership of that orchestra was largely local and very consistent for a long, long time. So, you know, in his last few years, you had an orchestra of people who'd been playing for 27, 28 years in the orchestra. Most of those folks, you know, were already in the process of retiring and have since retired since I got there. Um, And so we've, the orchestra is much more national and international now. People come from all over the country to play. Uh, but that means we've sort of lost that friends and family time with the local community. It's not as strong and as immediate as it, as it was. And uh, so, I mean, a friends and family audience is a, a very loyal one and mm-hmm. one that you can engage at relatively low cost. You know, they're going to come if they want to stay friends. Um, if you're looking for the cultural customer to come to your events, your offer needs to be a lot more engaging and a lot more exciting. And so, you know, we're working really, really hard to position ourselves, not just as you know, a, a worthwhile thing in the community, but something that's, you know, unbelievably exciting to go to. Yeah. For the listeners. Um, and that process will take time, you know, as, as perceptions of the nature of the orchestra and the festival shift. Um, it, it's it's a it's a big transition to to go through, but I think I think we're getting there, and and it's very exciting to see that process 
taking place. And it will, we are seeing now is that a much wider cross-section of people in Boulder and up and down the front range are taking an interest in the festival now, which is exactly what we want. Yeah, and I think the um, you know the visuals and the opera in a um, in a unique location are you know a great first step to to add that next level of of oomph or you know eventiness to it. Yeah, well, I mean, I always thought that you know Mahlerfest could be like Disneyland for the mind. I mean, because yeah. of, of where he sits historically. Um, he ties in with just about everything that we're still interested in. You know, and when I say we, I don't mean just like you and me, but I mean pretty much everyone, whether they know it or not. You know, from Mahler, we have, you know, film music. We have all this influence that goes into the you know, whole history of 20th century music. But also, you know, he was there and working with all the secessionist artists, artists the whole generation sort of took us into many of the artistic uh, innovations that dominated the the whole next hundred years. And, you know, likewise, you know, look at his uh, connection to well-known architects, designers, all sorts of people. So uh, it's, there's so much to draw on there and, and you know, we, we just need to sort of go in there and go for it and engage with it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So second symphony is coming up this year, right? Yeah. 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 It's a good one. <laughs> I mean, you know, I suppose if you said, what's your favorite Mahler symphony, I might say six. That was a, a sort of a, kind of a breakthrough piece for me. And I, I think in some okay. ways it's the, the most perfect of them all um, in terms of the, you know, just the relationship of the structure to the material. Um, if, if you had to say what's the most moving of them all, I'd probably say 10. I mean, that to me uh, is the, the deepest and the, the most profound uh, of them all, and every single one of them has something special. The second, I think, is the work out of all of them that brings people together in a sort of shared emotional state more powerfully, mm-hmm. not just than any of his other works, but I think maybe than any other work I can think of as a sort of act of musical community. It's the most powerful one I can think of. You know, it, it's mm-hmm. it, a good performance of Mahler, too, is something you never forget. I mean, and it's one of those moments where you feel like, you know, everyone in the building has, you know, transcended the boundaries of their own skin and bones and made contact with each other. Uh, and, and I don't know any other piece that does it quite so ecstatically as, as that one. So yeah, it's uh, it's going to be fun. Oh yeah. It's be yeah. Very yeah. loud also too. <laughs> yeah. The uh, Malachi was the, one of the first pieces that really just blew me totally away. As a, yeah. as a full piece and and when I started conducting I think just before just after right about that time and I was like my goal is I'm going to conduct Malachu it's going to happen someday <laughs> and has it happened yet it hasn't happened yet no it, it it um so I work with the with the Fort Collins Symphony I'm the assistant conductor and we're great we're doing Malachu about a couple of weeks before you guys <laughs> yeah, see this is what I'm talking about so you know if uh, if things go right my way and wrong for somebody else's way, I may be conducting it in May. But <laughs> Maybe take the music director out for some dodgy sushi or something. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't be happening. Uh, but that's how I, that's how I know Ethan. Those questions were from him. I, I thought they might be. Uh, yeah. yeah. So I'm curious because I I actually have to leave here in about 20 minutes for a rehearsal. But uh, before before I leave, I wanted to talk about Jeremy has shared a. Uh, 
an article, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was from your blog, about second symphonies and um, your opinions on some of the best second symphonies out there. <laughs> yeah. I was wondering if you would talk with us talk with us about that. I noticed uh, Schmidt's second symphony on there, which is one of my favorites. And of course, yeah. Rachmaninoff is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I suppose... Um, I, I I realized, I mean, one of the bad things about the age of the internet is that we can measure everything in very simplistic ways, whether we want to or not. So when you've got a blog, you can see exactly how many people read this or that <laughs> blog yeah. post. Um, now, of course, you can't, can't from that sort of necessarily say whether they got anything out of the blog post or whether it's made any difference or made the world a better place or made your career more successful. Um, but I did figure out pretty quickly that these sort of silly lists are actually very popular. Um, and so they're a useful tool. And uh, I think we have to accept that, you know, if we want our art form to survive, we have to be pragmatic. We have to embrace useful tools where we find them. So much as I'll see, uh, you know, colleagues on Facebook or Twitter saying, oh, I hate all these top 10 lists and stuff. It's like, well, but fine, come up with a better idea. <laughs> yeah. uh, they're, you know, they're effective. Yeah, they're, they're effective. And, uh, you know, so if anyone sees that list of second symphonies and goes and, you know, listens to something they wouldn't have otherwise known, then, you know, I think we can forgive the fact that it's kind of a, you know, simplistic mechanism. Yeah. Now, see, while we're here on uh, our, our chat, I'm actually going to look up what's on the list because I'm not sure I actually remember. So uh, I just right before we got on the phone, I, I was, you know, I was looking through and, and I sent Luke that because he's he's a big fan of those um, pieces that you should know that you don't know. And, you know, I listened I listened <laughs> through the Copeland quick, the Copeland sec or the short symphony, I think, was on there. And what I what I really liked about the list is it is, you know, you you explained what each one it wasn't just, a, you know, it wasn't just a straight up list. You you had all the sections like living living composers and unknown composers and standards and then you know your miscellaneous ones and and you you know you give a great short description of of each one and it's i think it's a good list i don't think there's anything wrong with these yeah no, actually well, you know, it looks, I, i'm looking at go ahead yeah yeah go hi luke oh I was, I was just gonna say that you mentioned that you know uh those kind of lists are what you know, if someone listens to something that they hadn't heard before from it, that's that's me. I, I'm that person who like goes on and finds those lists and then goes and listens to something that I probably wouldn't have listened to. So, you know, I appreciate those lists because they help me find new things. Well, ex exactly. And, I, you know, I find some new things out of them myself. And uh, that particular thread brought some very interesting things in, in the comments, and you know, including a couple of composers whose music I didn't know at all. So. Uh, hopefully it goes in, in, in both directions. Yeah. And this, it gives you an opportunity to like, I mean, I'm a big Walter Piston fan. I think his music is uh, shamefully underperformed. We did uh, his Sinfonietta in London last year with ESO. And uh, we had a couple of veteran music critics there. And after the concert, they were sort of, you know, going through their vast collective memories. And they decided that that was the first professional performance of a major Piston piece in London they could remember since Leonard Slatkin had done the second symphony at the proms wow. in 1982. <laughs> you know, so, 
Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, and Piston Second, I think, is maybe his best symphony. They're okay. all, all really good. It's certainly the best slow movement I can think of in any mm-hmm. American symphony. So, you know, a list like this gives you a chance to kind of put a nudge in for that. You know, I can just sneak a couple of uh, plugs in there for things I've recorded that I'm really fond of, like Hans Gall's Second Symphony mm-hmm. and Philip Sawyer's, which are both pieces I just think, you know, everyone's got to know. They're just so great, you know. And uh, uh, Schmidt is, you know, so deserving. Uh, hopefully that whole generation is is getting getting better known now. Uh, so, yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to hear that it's uh, getting getting read and, and talked about. And, uh, yeah, and I mean, I'm, I'm, I've, I, sh- I sent it to Luke just because we were about to talk, but I'm, you know, I'm definitely going to be sharing it around. Um, and I really liked you had, I think, the most beautiful openings of symphonies. Also, that one, you know, it's, it's an awesome little list, and it's, it's easy to just jump in and, um, you know, and start, and start listening to something because I know, yeah, I don't know, but I don't listen to as much music as, <laughs> as I should be. Well, I think none of us do. Once we, I mean, obviously, as a, as a conductor, you've got to devote a disproportionate amount of time to silent contemplation of the music that you've got to learn right away. Uh, you know, and so you might spend, you know, several hours a day looking at a score of a piece, whereas a, a music consumer could in that time, you know, listen to all of the Brahms symphonies or something. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, maybe listen to several recordings of all of the Brahms symphonies. Uh, you know, I certainly, have come into contact with you know music lovers via social media who have the most inspiringly voracious musical appetites and you know are listening to everything and if, every once in a while they'll post something that's absolutely fantastic you know you think oh, i've got to check this out based on the 30 seconds i've heard but for me then usually that means it sits on a to listen to list for six months before i actually yeah um, get it out. I mean, I've got, you can't see it on the, the camera as we talk, but there's a stack of CDs about three and a half feet tall, just next to the computer here, <laughs> of stuff that's been sent to me by, you know, various soloists, composers, groups, whatever. They'll all get listened to eventually, but you know, it, it takes time. And, uh, you know, usually it ends up sort of being when the whole thing falls over, you know, the <laughs> that, you know, something really egregious has gotten forgotten for ages. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, so kind of, kind of related to these, to these lesser known works. Um, could you talk about the, the 21st century symphony project? I'm very glad to hear you ask about the 21st century <laughs> symphony project. Um, Cause it's very, very close to my heart. So this is a project with the English symphony orchestra again. Um, I remember sitting in my apartment in Cincinnati when I was first studying conducting there and our sort of set piece for the semester was Brahms one. I never analyzed a piece sort of that meticulously before, you know, when you sort of suddenly crack open the, the code of a work like that and, and, and see how all the motives relate and connect and everything as you know, it's just completely mind-blowing. And uh, and I was just so in love with the piece at the time. And I just remember having this thought of like, you know, imagine, you know, the world before this piece was written, you know, because we take these things for granted. But of course there was, you know, there was a, a planet Earth a week before Brahms 1 was done for the first time. 
and then Brahms one was done, and now we we will forever, as long as we you know don't blow ourselves up, have Brahms one and Mahler yeah. six and all these pieces. Um, and what would it be like to be there at those moments? You know, we've all read descriptions of the premiere of Shostakovich five or Shostakovich seven. These events that you know brought together a whole nation and that were you know transformative for a whole generation of musicians and, and people. Um, I think we can be more ambitious in our own time about the impact we want our commissioning and our support of new music to have. Um, and, uh, and so for me, that means giving composers a chance to make really big statements about what they believe and what they feel and who they are at a given time in their life. I think too much space in our programs is given over to contemporary pieces, which while incredibly well-crafted and skillfully written are often forced for economic reasons, fears about the audience, whatever, you know, the pieces are you know, seven to 15 minutes long, mm-hmm. um, often for uh, expensive combinations of instruments. And, and so you get things that are brought into the world done once or twice at relatively great expense, but that actually don't often give the composer a chance to make a big statement. And I also think the sort of post-World War II schism, the break from traditional language and all of that, which in itself isn't a bad thing, but it's, it's a, there's a price paid for it, if you understand what I'm saying. And I don't know that that price had to be paid. Uh, you know, the composers who were writing in traditional genres before the war and writing maybe in a more tonally directed way um, were in their way just as important and as accomplished as Schoenberg and his disciples. Uh, But after the war, their legacy, that we're talking about people like Schmidt, Korngold, Ullmann, uh, Hans Gall, you know, these are people who either died or went into exile. Their music was largely forgotten, not programmed. And that process intensified throughout the 1960s and 70s as leading European broadcasters really decided that new music had to be of a certain kind of modernist aesthetic. Um, so, you know, why not, you know, if you, if you want the audience to know the excitement of being at the premiere of a Mahler symphony or the excitement of being at the premiere of a Shostakovich symphony, you have to, you have to give them works of similar scope and ambition and communicative power. Um, so uh, I had known Philip Sawyer's music for a while. Philip is the composer laureate now of the ESO. We met early in my time in the UK. I was uh, conducting the Kent County Youth Orchestra, which is a, a wonderful program here in the UK, one of the older youth orchestras in the world. Uh, and Philip was coaching the second violins for that. So in that group, each section works with a leading London professional player, usually the principals of the London orchestras. And Philip, who was an alumni of, of KCYO, had been in the Covent Garden Opera Orchestra for most of his professional life and coached the second violins. So we met in the course of, of, of KCYO and uh, had some lovely meals together and a few bottles of wine over the course of a week. And at the end, he said, oh, 
this is terribly embarrassing and I don't want to destroy our nascent friendship, but now I have to tell you that I'm a composer and ask you to listen to my music. Um, so I did in due course listen to his music and I was blown away by it. And uh, so I, I recorded his second symphony when I was at the Orchestra of the Swan. And when I got to yeah, yeah. ESO, I thought, well, you know, finally here I am. I'm music director of a relatively mm-hmm. distinguished mm-hmm. recording professional orchestra. I should commission a symphony. So I called up Philip. I said, you know, I got this new job. Write us a symphony. He wrote his third symphony for us. And when I got that, I thought, oh, this is it. This is the thing I've been thinking about all these years. This, because the score was so thrilling to look at um, uh, that I just thought, this is, you know, this is the, the kind of piece that for the people who hear it will be like being at a Shostakovich symphony, like being at a, at a Beethoven symphony. And so not long after that, I, I, I thought, well, you know, not only do we have to do this, we have to do more of this. And so by, by, by the time we'd gone through the ordeal of sort of two and a half years of fundraising to put on the premiere and record his third symphony, you know, the, the idea of a, a project, which in this case, I thought we, you know, just because of all the, you know, various, you know, jokes about, you know, composers writing nine symphonies and dying, we, you know, commission nine symphonies from nine different composers. Uh, at least as a starting point. And so that's that's what we've done. And so we, we premiered Phillips in 2017. Um, and, you know, funnily enough, without any prompting from me, you know, I had people coming up to me after the concert saying, you know, this must have been what it was like in 1937 to hear Shostakovich live for the first time, because I feel like this music embodies what it feels like to be alive now. All the feelings of dread and worry and hope and aspiration um you know and and that was you know just so exciting to hear uh the next year we did david matthews ninth symphony uh which felt like a a a doubly great occasion it's a wonderful piece but you know a ninth symphony is by nature almost always kind of a special watermark uh, for any composer um, and David, who's you know done so much with the music of Mahler throughout the years, is you know, someone I really, really ad- have admired since you know forever, and to get to know him, you know, it's, it's a little bit like meeting your heroes or something. So that was great. And then this past summer, uh, Matthew Taylor's Fifth Symphony was was the third in that project, and uh, again, just an astoundingly good piece. I mean, I keep pinching myself after these things. You know, how do we get such good pieces out of these composers? Um, and we've got several more in the pipeline, and, and they're all turning out to be really, really strong. I think you know, I'd like to think that just the the ethos of the project, that, which is basically like, you know, we don't really have any money, we don't really have any, you know, anything going for us except our enthusiasm for your music, you know, and and that we will find a, a way to to put it on and, and record it and bring it to life. And so each symphony in the project has been premiered under different circumstances. We try to find partnerships with festivals or venues, um, you know, so that we're working in a situation where we can help develop an audience for all of this. Um, yeah, it's it's been extremely exciting so far. And of course, then the offshoot of that, which I'm really excited about, is that then that hopefully just grows way beyond the scope of the initial project and leads to opportunities to do 
things with other orchestras, with other composers that aren't necessarily specific to the ESO zone project, but just get people listening to, to new symphonies and new music with yeah. different ears. Yeah. Do you think some of the, some of the success has to do with them, um, you know, being, being free, not being, having to be, uh, you know, their, their assignment is just to write an incredible work and you know, that they're know they're going to get a premiere. They know is going to get a good performance and they, they have that freedom to write this, this monumental, you know, significant moment in, in music. Yeah. I had a very interesting conversation the other day with the head of a very esteemed publishing company, which I can't disclose because um, <laughs> of what I'm about to tell you that this person yeah. said, but he said to me, he said, you know, what's so exciting about some of these composers is, you know, that they're just obviously, you know, writing from their, their guts. And he said, you know, yeah, to be perfectly honest, he said, you know, most of the composers that I represent, you know, they're writing for commission and they stopped writing for fun yeah. a long time ago. <laughs> um, and now I'm all for commissioning. I'm all for money. You know, we all want money and we can't pay our rent with satisfaction and all of that. Uh, but I do think it, it's uh, very exciting what happens when, when someone is saying, this is the piece that's been boiling in my guts for 20 years that I've been wanting to write. Um, you know, this, and, uh, so we try to give them as much latitude as, as we can. And I'll, you know, I'll say things, you know, which you would never hear the Chicago symphony say, for instance, which is sort of, you know, if you want to write it for triple woodwinds instead of double woodwinds, that's fine. It just might take us another two years to find a performance because it's going to be that much more expensive, (laughs) uh, to, to put on, you know, and, uh, so it's up to you. How long do you want to wait? You know, uh, but uh, it's it's incredibly exciting. The next one we're premiering is James Francis Brown's first symphony. We haven't done a first symphony yet, so I'm excited about that. And he's been wanting to write a symphony, you know, since the early 90s. So, you know, I think he'll come up with something really extraordinary, I'm sure. Uh, you know, whereas, you know, for David, it's the culmination of a life's work with the genre. In yeah. case, you know, he's writing his absolutely prime of his life as a symphonist. I'm recording Philip's fourth symphony next month with the BBC National Orchestra of Wales. So that's not an ESO specific one, but that's a, a really, really exciting work. And of course, when you get to do, you know, multiple symphonies with a composer, you can see how their thinking develops over the years. And, and you start to see, you know, we look at the output of Brahms or Beethoven or Bruckner and see how actually their collection of symphonies whether by design or accident, end up sort of embodying their outlook on life. You know, it, it sort of both takes you through their their life story as people from beginning to end, but there's also a wholeness about them where you can sort of view it as a reasonably coherent statement from them about the human condition, particularly some of the later symphonists, like, you know, the, the Mahler. I mean, it's like a manifesto, his uh, 11 symphonies, if you count them all. Uh, you know, they all knit together and somehow the, they make sense as a coherent unit, Brahms particularly. So, I mean, he was so keen not to repeat himself, you know, that those four symphonies kind of, that's it. I mean, that's sort of everything you need to know about life is, is, is the four Brahms symphonies. Yeah. There was a, a Twitter poll this week going on saying, you know, you, 
if you if you could pick any of the following, which would you have? And the, the options were Beethoven ten, uh, Mahler eleven, Sibelius eight, or Brahms five. You know, so these are all yeah. one more number than any of the respective composers completed. And I thought, well, you know, I, I voted for Sibelius eight because that was the you know the most tantalizing. Mm-hmm. One and we think he wrote it, you know, and and you know maybe there's a copy floating around somewhere <laughs> in a warehouse in in, in Finland. Uh, but Brahms Five, I mean, it's a wonderful idea, but he he, he completed his thoughts on the genre. Yeah, I don't, yeah. you know, can you imagine Brahms writing a choral symphony or something? I mean, you know, it just you know, no. what what else can you say after the. Uh, cataclysm that ends the fourth symphony and you know what yeah. what brahms ultimately has to say about life isn't very happy i suppose but it's very definitive and very complete somehow well and it's you know he started experimenting with the orchestra with the haydn variations yeah. and then he ends you know he ends the last symphony just like he ends the haydn's with the you know with the huge uh variations and it's you know even as it is it kind of rounds off like that yeah absolutely anyway, yeah Mm-hmm. Um, you have, I noticed, it seems that you have an affinity for, for Schumann too. Well, I have an affinity for all Schumann, but I, <laughs> I think Schumann too is, is the closest to my heart of, of all four of those. Okay. Um, and I'm, I'm not alone. I mean, it's, I was talking earlier about how, you know, when I was young, you'd meet a Mahler fan. It was like, you know, a fellow weirdo yeah. that you could kind of bond with. Um, yeah. Schumann two fanatics, you know, that's, that's like a definite <laughs> thing. There are Schumann two fanatics out there yeah. uh, who, who absolutely love that piece. Uh, one of them was my colleague, David Hoos, who taught with me for several years at the Rose City conducting workshop that I used to run uh, in Portland. And uh, I, we discovered this one night. We were out with, you know, all the young conductors after a day of classes. And someone said, oh, what's the best symphony written? since the death of Beethoven and David and I both simultaneously said Schumann too immediately. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, that's, that piece is so emotionally rich and so personal and, and it's just, it, it, it just touches me so deeply. You know, this idea of this sort of heroic love song, um, and and the way in which the, the piece sort of embodies the two great loves in his life, which is music and Clara, yeah. and he and he he brings them together, and you know, in a way that's never cheesy or trite or saccharine, um, and in a way that shows you know all the pain that he'd been through, all the fear that he had about the future, uh, but that's ultimately so hopeful and and loving. It's just an, an incredible piece, and. Uh, always you know, just unbelievably rewarding to perform yeah but all yeah i don't i don't know it very well oh. i know the first symphony and i think the the fourth which one is the renish is that the fourth well the third? <laughs> this is the problem i don't know <laughs> no one uh, so uh, yeah. the renish is of course number three but it's actually the fourth that he yes wrote. uh yeah so he wrote them in the order of one four two three uh, and uh, this creates a lot of confusion because the, the fourth symphony, the D minor, is clearly in the same language as, as the first symphony. It's an early piece, you know, written yeah. almost the same time, just basically, you know, the next year uh, after the spring symphony. Um, 
and the the reddish is is his final work his his, his summation of of his his thoughts about what the symphony is um a bit like Brahms what what strikes me about the four Schumann symphonies is is the extent to which he doesn't repeat himself that they all have different approaches to form all of which are completely new you know so he's approaching form in each of those four symphonies in a way that you don't see in Mendelssohn Schubert Beethoven Haydn or Mozart they're all incredibly innovative all four I think more formally innovative than any of the Brahms symphonies uh, or say, you know, Dvorak symphonies, Tchaikovsky symphonies. I mean, so, you know, you have um, in the D minor, this, you know, beginning of the idea of the single movement symphony from which we get Sibelius Seven, the Mischermberg Chamber Symphony, threading the work together in a single breath. And it's very fascinating to look at the original version of the D minor um, uh, which he chose not to publish, and the revised version, which is why we call it Symphony Number no. Four, which he chose to publish. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> and see how his uh, work in the revision was primarily about making the journey of the piece more seamless. So he worked particularly okay. on the transitions to make the evolution of the music less chunky and blocky and more more flexible and to strengthen the connections between the first and last movements of the piece by creating more sort of thematic references in the last movement to the, the first movement. Um, and that's an interesting thing about Schumann as a composer and composers generally that, you know, anyone can write a really good four bar phrase. If you put your mind to it, you know, what, what great composers can do is write transitions. So yeah, if you look yeah. at the, I, I, one of the, most exciting sort of pinch me days of my professional life was spent at the Morgan library in New York when I actually got to spend a day with the manuscript of Schumann too. And that was, you know, everyone's got their, you know, thing they'd like to see, you know, but I, I would way rather spend a day with that than, you know, the manuscript of Hamlet or the Bible for that matter, you know, Schumann uh, yeah, was yeah. You know, <laughs> amazing. And you can see, because he used different state colors of uh, ink and pencil at different stages in the process of working on the piece, mm-hmm. how it develops. You know, we have this perception of Schumann as a rather neurotic character. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You can see that that neurosis definitely didn't extend to how he composed because hmm. um, it's pretty confidently written out. But, yeah. but where he does work and rework and rework at things is in the transitions. Uh, you know, so in the transition from the slow introduction to the Allegro, the first movement of Schumann II, that he really, really worked at until he got it right. Uh, this is one of the reasons, like, it kind of bums me out when people do the original version of the D minor symphony, which is kind of uh, faddish these days. You know, it's like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, first of all, he specifically didn't think it was fit for publication, but also, I mean, mm-hmm. if you can't, as a professional conductor look at those two pieces side by side (laughs) and see what he achieved in the second one you know see the work that went in to making the most of his musical material then maybe you shouldn't be doing the piece because Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh, (laughs) this is one of the greatest musical minds who ever lived has really poured his heart and soul into trying to take this youthful idea for a piece and turn it into a masterpiece which Mm -hmm. is, is what he did yeah, I, I find it interesting that a lot of his revisions 
were you know formal transitional because and correct me if i'm wrong but the the impression that i have about the Mahler revisions is that most of them were details most of them are orchestration things that showed up in rehearsal yeah that's absolutely correct um okay. there are only structural changes in in the first two symphonies you know the first symphony of course had the most complicated gestation uh, in terms of you know him trying to decide how many movements it should have and, yeah. and all that. Um, I suppose there's the very special example of him flipping the movement order of the Sixth Symphony and how many times he may or may not have flipped it back and forth. Uh, but uh, you know beyond that, yeah, it is just him working on details of texture to make sure mm-hmm. that the, the material comes through as, as he wants it to. It was very interesting at Mahlerfest this past year doing the first symphony next to Mahler's orchestration of Beethoven's Leonore Number no. 3 overture because yeah. um, his approach to revision in his own music is exactly the same as how he approaches the Beethoven. Really? Which is sort of saying, how do I make sure the audience hears what they need to hear in the music? Yeah. And yeah. and so, you know, he, he looks and says, well, look, you've got this passage here where Beethoven's written the cellos with the melody in a low register against a timpani roll, which is fortissimo, that ain't going to work <laughs> with a symphony orchestra, with, with modern timpani, you know, the mo- timpani of his time would have been not as boomy and resident as ours, but they would have been much more so than Beethoven's. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so he, you know, he does just what he does in his own music. He takes things out, he puts in forte pianos, he puts in diminuendos, um, he makes the dynamics of, of the various parts much more specific um, and it, it's it's fascinating to compare the two and, and that actually for most of his symphonies once the process of composing them is, is complete the subsequent revisions are taken much more with his conductor's hat on than his composer's yeah. hat yeah yeah i am um, i did a workshop with scott o'neill a couple months ago and we were we we're doing we we're working on, on the adagietto and the second movement mm-hmm. from the from Mahler five, and what he had done, um, which must have taken just forever, was he had all the Mahler symphonies. He used the Dover scores, mm-hmm. um, but then he had compared them and used red pen to mark every single change. And so he was walking us through some of these changes and pointing out that most of them were reductions. Most of them were taking something away, yeah. so that something else could come through. And it was, you know, it was a totally different level instead of just picking whatever one you do. So now he, he has both versions whenever he travels. So, so if the, whatever, whatever part the orchestra has, you know, if they have, they're using the parts that match the Dover score, he can, he can, you know, say first violins don't play these three measures um, because Mahler was wanting, Mahler was wanting this to come out. And it was just a fascinating, yeah. must have taken forever. I, I just, I want to take the books from him. I don't want to yeah. <laughs> you know, sit down and do the work. But uh, yeah. Um, I mean, the thing with Mahler, of course, is that that process would never have stopped, you know, had he lived long. Oh, of course. We would just have more versions, you know, and even looking, uh, if you take either the new Breitkopf version or the Wilkins uh, version of, of Mahler 1 and compare it, to the score he used in New York for his last performance, which is on the New York Philharmonic website. You know, there are interesting changes in, in both. And you can see him, you know, marking out tempo markings here and there and mm-hmm. stuff. Uh, but, but generally, yeah, not 
uh, you know, rewriting the actual music. Uh, I mean, which makes, yeah. you know, where there are changes in the early symphonies, it can be quite shocking. The original version of the first movement of the second symphony was rediscovered 25, 30 years ago. My teacher, Gerhard Samuel, gave the first performance of that, Totenfire, you probably know it, yeah. um, written for smaller orchestra than, than the eventual symphony was. But in the middle of the first movement, in the middle of Totenfire, which you know more or less sounds like the piece that you know, suddenly there's a big chunk of music that isn't in the symphony. And I remember listening to it and just being completely shocked, you know, because you've listened to the piece, you know, a couple hundred times and suddenly there's new stuff there. Uh, but you realize with composers, and I've seen this with some of the guys I've worked with on the 21st Century Symphony Project, is that sometimes it's very painful to get the scissors out and take out a bit that you were excited about. Or, or they say, you know, I really liked this melody, but it doesn't fit in this piece, you know, and then it's, it's got to go. Um, you know, another interesting case study for revision is uh, Sibelius Fifth Symphony, you know, which there are three versions of. And uh, you can clearly, as with Schumann Fourth, you can see that he was absolutely right in what he did. And the, the struggle was yeah. all worth it. And in a way, it's like trying to solve the world's hardest Sudoku puzzle or something. You know, the, uh, you know when the material is... <laughs> putting up resistance the composer knows that you know they haven't solved the puzzle they haven't found the perfect expression of the musical ideas that they have mm -hmm. and most of these composers i think they have a general sense that the material in a way belongs to a greater force than just them yeah. and and you know sibelius himself said your music is written on the clouds for us to transcribe um so you know, he, he fought and he struggled with it and came up with, you know, a masterpiece. And, you know, and if you study Sibelius V, it's very much like studying a Brahms symphony. You study it, you think, well, you know, it couldn't be any other way than how it is. But it was yeah. another way, you know. <laughs> and, you know, where, you know, Brahms symphony gives you the impression that he has a master plan from the first note to the last. Sibelius, you know, gives you that impression, but you realize, actually, in the process, he was groping and trying to find how that material works. And so he had to give up some very cool stuff. And there's some wonderfully yeah. weird and strange music in the original version of the fifth symphony that, that had to go. Uh, and uh, likewise in the first version of his uh, violin concerto, <coughs> there's cool things, but you know, stuff has to go to, yeah. to get to the form that the composer has in mind. Mm-hmm. So if you could talk about um, briefly, I know you have um, a great interest in Hans Gall as well. And I, I think I only know that name from the front of my Brahms score right over here. Yeah. Is that right? <laughs> well, absolutely. That's, that's what I knew about him when his name was first mentioned to me. Yeah. Um, so briefly, I, I came into contact with his music through my colleague, Annette Barbara Vogel, who's a German violinist now based in Canada. We were schoolmates in Cincinnati and played chamber music together and became friends. And I had become fascinated with music of Antarctic to Musique composers. This was at the time that that initial series of Decca recordings was coming out. Uh, and uh, I had worked with Henry Meyer, who was my chamber music teacher in Cincinnati, the longtime second violinist of the LaSalle Quartet 
on uh, one of the first performances of Ullmann's third string quartet. Ullmann was killed in Auschwitz after being deported from mm-hmm. Theresienstadt, and that was my entry into that world. Henry himself was a survivor of Auschwitz, so it, it, it felt very personal. And I was fa- so I, be- I was fascinated and deeply immersed in that world, and Annette knew that and said, I've been approached by the Gall family to uh, record his violin concerto. Would you be interested? And I said, Hans Gall wrote music? Get out of here. I thought he was just, you know, the guy who edited the Brahms symphonies. <coughs> well, after a while, I got a copy of the score of the violin concerto and took it home, put it on the piano. And it, and it was really, I can still remember what the light in the room was like that day, what time of year it was, because you by about the fourth page, I thought, gosh, this guy's a major composer. You're not yeah, just like yeah. kind of a worthwhile good composer, <laughs> but a, a major composer. Yeah. So Annette and I got to work and uh, wrote a. Am I allowed to say shitload on this uh, podcast? Absolutely. Yeah. We we encourage swearing yeah. when necessary. We wrote a shitload of funding applications until we <laughs> we hit pay dirt, and and got a big grant from a foundation in Canada. So we were able yeah. to record. His violin concerto is concertino for violin and strings and triptych, which is an orchestral mm-hmm. piece, basically a three movement symphony. Uh, and that just did fantastically well. And it was a real life changer for me. And since then, I've done uh, the first complete cycle of his four symphonies, all of which are okay. amazing. And, you know, symphonists, I mean, we're, we're having a symphonic moment now. And it's exciting to see how many great ones there are floating around who I know now mm-hmm. is just, you know, really cool yeah. for you know just a, a kid from wisconsin to get to know all these <laughs> symphonists uh but you know historically there haven't been that many great symphonists and yeah. like yeah. between the death of beethoven and brahms one you know you've got not very much and there's you know at any one time you, know, you schubert died very shortly after beethoven you know you've got a period where sort of mendelssohn is the guy and then a short period where Schumann is the guy and then kind of a black hole. And then Brahms comes along. It gets better later in the 19th century when you sort of have, you know, a little bit of overlap of Brahms, Bruckner and Dvorak. But these, you know, they're a rare breeze, breed, the, the great symphonist. And, and so Gall is an important addition to that canon. Um, and what's striking about his music is, I think, two or three things. He, um, the quality is incredibly consistent. Um, across all sorts of genres. Um, he was a very, very fine and successful opera composer before he was sent into exile and his music was banned. He never returned to opera after the war, <clears throat> which is a great loss, but there are four really fantastic operas, one of which has finally been recorded recently, but uh, that's music that needs to be done. Um, he wrote great chamber music. He was a great sort of composer pianist in the tradition of Brahms and Beethoven, he studied piano with the same uh, teachers, Schnabel and uh, Serkin. Um, and so there's some great solo piano music, which has been recorded, great chamber music repertoire. And then there's some big, you know, sort of uh, orchestra and chorus stuff. And he wrote fantastic concertos for violin, cello and piano, as well as concertinos. So we're working our way through through that body of work and uh, you know, certainly would commend it to your listeners, because I think this is music that is so gorgeous that, that, that people need to hear it. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, he represents a, a very personal and very honest, but completely 
different response to the two world wars from, okay. from say, Schoenberg or Webern or Shostakovich or, you know, any of these other 20th century composers who we think of as having a strong association with historical events. Um, he was born in 1890, so old enough to be mm. drafted into service in the First World War. Yeah. He said his his rifle posed a greater danger to his friends and colleagues than to the enemy. So they eventually <laughs> moved him onto other duties. Uh, but he he was old enough when the war broke out. He would have been 24 at the start of the war uh, that he could see how, in a way, the Europe he grew up in, which was the Vienna of Mahler, and so he as a young boy he went to the first performance of Mahler six. Wow. Yeah. And he, he said, you know, the world ended. Yeah. I mean, the world yeah. ended. So that's the first <laughs> chapter in his life and his compositional career really begins after the first world war mm-hmm. in this moment of trying to rebuild the world. And then it happens again. And in a way that much more directly affects him. And his response was not to write big, works of protest or memorial or uh, outrage, but to protect the sanctity of music. So the more violent the world got, the more tender and beautiful and lyrical his music gets. And you take a work like his second symphony, which was written at the the peak of World War II in a year in which uh, his own son and three of his other close relatives all died. by suicide, in fact, uh, you know, as, as friends and colleagues were being deported to Auschwitz. Um, and it, it's such a beautiful piece, you know, and, and, and written at a time where there was no prospect of it being performed. And so for him, yeah, it was uh, his way of pushing back against the Nazis, pushing back against the tragedies that came at him from different angles in life was to sort of protect his musical world and that music was a, a, a sanctuary and that beauty was, was really holy to him. And so throughout his creative life, rather than following the trajectory of most 20th century music towards complexity and dissonance and intensity, in his evolution, the, the progression is towards pure and pure chamber music, sparser textures, a more classical approach to form, a more sort of rigorous approach to, to form, restraint, intimacy, and all of that. And so it's no accident in a way that his fourth and final symphony is a symphonia concertante. You know, it's this very, very Haydn-esque style, yeah. you know. Yeah. And, and you know, you have this guy who, you know, grew up as the Mahler symphonies were coming to life, you know, finishing with a symphony under 30 minutes for a Haydn-sized orchestra, with Haydn-esque forces. And, uh, you know, it's, but it's not a reactionary or conservative gesture. It's a different kind of response, a, yeah. a different form of protest, I think. And I think with a little bit of uh, historical space now, we can see him not as an anachronism, but mm. at, as a survivor, you know, yeah. and that here is this yeah. amazing figure who, as a six-year-old boy, played piano to Brahms, who wrote his mm-hmm. last piece in 1986 when Margaret Thatcher was prime minister. Wow. Wow. Um, and, and that, you know, he, and, and, you know, hats off to him because he stuck to his guns against all odds. And I'll just draw a point of comparison. I did a, 
big recording project of all of the piano concertos of Ernst Krenek, who's very much the same generation. They knew each other, um, you know, both, you know, from Vienna and uh, you know, immersed in that world. I mean, Krenek also, you know, he was briefly married to Mahler's daughter, you know, so the, it's all affected by the same historical forces. But, you know, Krenek became sort of a stylistic chameleon. His music changed so many times in the course of his life. Um, and uh, there was a point in the 1960s where someone who I've since come to know said to Krenek, you know, why don't you write music like you did in the 1920s? He said, well, I wish I could, but, you know, it's America in the 1960s. And if it's not 12 tone, you know, I, I can't get away with it. And I don't want to lose my job. I don't want people to laugh at me. You know, yeah. so I've got to kind of roll with the punches. And, and I, that wasn't cynical or weak on his part, but it does make me respect all the more the fact that Gall was able to somehow stay true to his, his voice through all of that. Um, it was a real, because I think he paid a huge price for it. Uh, yeah. I remember doing his concertino for cello and strings, which is a piece from the early 1960s, uh, which was really the time that things broke down completely for him in the UK, which is where he lived for the second half of his life. Uh, the BBC in particular totally cut links with all tonal and traditional composers, you know, both the yeah. immigrant Grays like Gal, but also people like Malcolm Arnold and stuff. You know, okay. it, you know, it became a very much a pure modernist mindset. And again, I'm, I'm not one of these people who like thinks that was that supporting Boulez and Stockhausen is in itself a bad thing. It's a great thing, but why <laughs> did it have to be a choice? You yeah. know, why can't you have have both? Um, but there's something very touching about a, a piece like that which is so sincere and so beautiful and so communicative that you know, and that he knew coming into the world didn't stand a fighting chance at all. This was music that, you know, wasn't going to get taken seriously for a long, long time, but certainly deserves to be. Yeah, I can't. Uh, so you've, you've, you've added so many things to my, to listen to, <laughs> <laughs> to listen to list today. Well, I mean, I think in a way, you know, I like to think that our job as conductors is to be Sam. I am. And, yeah. you know, if you know your Dr. Zeus, you know, Sam, I am is the man who tries to get you to try green eggs mm. and ham, you know? Yeah. And, and uh, so we we're constantly begging our audiences, come along, hear this new piece, try it out, you know, try it. You will like it. You will like it. You will see. Um, and uh, the, the sad thing about this is that when I think there's nothing worse you can do as a promoter of concerts or as a performer than play music you don't believe in or yeah. lie to your audience about music that you do yeah. believe in. And we're frankly a little bit screwed because our audiences have been told for years, come to this concert. We're going to play a, 30 minute piece by Elliot Carter and you're going to love it. And let's face it, you know, I mean, Carter was a genius. He's a great composer, but you know, Joe blow from the suburbs who wants to come in and hear the Rachmaninoff second piano concerto probably is not going to get anywhere with the Carter. If they come in yeah. being told, yeah. Oh, you like Rachmaninoff? You love Elliot Carter. Uh, <laughs> it, you know, it's just going to end in tears. And so we, 
those of us who run orchestras now have this problem that, you know, when we say, come, you'll love it, people don't believe us anymore. And, uh, you know, when I program Hans Gall, we have to work extra hard because audiences see an unknown Austro-German name on a program. You know, they assume that Hans Gall is probably someone like Baron Zimmermann or something, you know, that it's going to be really hardcore mid-20th century modernism, and it's not for them. On the other hand, if you want to do Carter and Rachmaninoff, just be honest, you know, just say, this piece is hardcore. Yeah. It's hardcore, and, you know, it's a, just, you know, trust me, the third or fourth time you listen to it, you'll 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 really dig it and you'll be glad that yeah. i made you listen to it uh <laughs> yeah and it does take that third or fourth time so yeah. which is unfortunately we only get you know the one shot in the concert yeah. very often but when, when, we, when we put on our sam i am hat we put our brochure out you know to the audience at the you know beginning of the season and say come to these concerts you know what we're saying is you know try it you'll like it and you have to believe that there's a reasonable chance that the pieces that you've chosen to program will actually connect with your audience. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and don't bullshit them, you know, because I, I think, you know, a, a Hans Gall symphony or a Philip Sawyer symphony or a David Matthews symphony, these are pieces that, you know, I, I'm reasonably confident that if people listen with <laughs> open ears, they'll, they'll dig it. And, yeah. and if I want to do something that's yeah. uh, more stylistically adventurous, then you have to have a strategy in mind for how you're going to get that across or accept that it's a different audience, that it's a niche okay. audience. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, so, uh, you know, I, I did uh, what in my early years here, a lot of work with a group called the Contemporary Music Ensemble of Wales, which we used to jokingly call um, a Darmstadt Historical Preservation Society. I mean, it was all... <laughs> like notorious works of the sixties and seventies that had fallen apart yeah. mirrors because they were too complicated. Um, you know, that group, you know, was never going to get 600 people to come to a concert, mm -hmm. but you know, they had about a hundred fanatically okay. loyal people who would come, yeah. you know, to the one or two concerts a year where you would do the most difficult music imaginable and you'd supplant it or the artistic director Gordon Downey would supplant that with, you know, working with the BDC and grant writing and stuff to mm. allow us to put on really high class performances of that repertoire. Yeah. But, you know, you can't, you can't lie to the audience and say that, you know, oh, you, know, you like Schumann too? Try this Zanakis. It's great. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Which is not that, you know, they couldn't eventually dig Zanakis, but you've got to be honest about how they're going to get there. And, uh, you know, what's the right time to do it and certainly not lying about it, you know? Yeah. And, uh, I mean, lots of big orchestras just lie all the time about, you know, how they think the audience is going to feel about things. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I think in a way, maybe the balance, I'm sorry, I'm pontificating now, but, um, <laughs> the balance of pieces that you think the audience will like on first hearing versus more challenging pieces. You know, if you do more of the former, then those few of the latter have a better chance of uh, being welcomed with open arms. Whereas if, if, you know, people feel like, you know, nine out of the 10 new pieces they've heard in the last five years yeah. uh, were alienating in some ways, mm -hmm. then they're not going to take a chance on the next one. 
which yeah. which which was maybe the one that they were going to like if they yeah. gave it a shot. Yeah, it's a really tough predicament. It is because we don't want the tradition to die. I mean, we don't want the art yeah. form to die. Um, and and it could die very very fast, or it could collapse and implode, uh, so that the music still exists for the consumers, but it no longer is a viable way to make a living. Mm-hmm. And which is what has happened with jazz. I mean, you can't make a living as a jazz musician now, you know, unless you're Branford Marsalis or something. Uh, you know, it's basically impossible. Um, and uh, you know, people used to make their living as jazz musicians. You know, uh, and and that we don't have. <clears throat> subsidized organizations with boards of directors who underwrite the possibility of jazz music playing a vibrant and lively role in communities all over the country, the way we do orchestras, which is a great pity, but it just goes to show, you know, the orchestras could disappear overnight too, just as the the big bands and, and other kinds of musical organizations have. And I think just thinking that we can rest on our laurels with uh, pieces of the past that our audiences already have an affection for, that ain't going to fly. I mean, I'm, a, a, <laughs> you know, you look at theater, I think they're more successful than we are because their balance of reverence for, say, Shakespeare, who's maybe their Beethoven, is just as mm-hmm. high but the proportion of new new work that they present is also much higher. Mm-hmm. And the assumption with new work is not that it will be alienating or difficult or that there will be an inherent trade-off in box office because you're doing new work compared to Oscar Wilde or Shakespeare or whatever. Yeah. You know, they, uh, theater companies sort of assume that everything's got to work from a commercial <laughs> point of view, they, you know, yeah. and, and, you know, that uh, an audience is kind of assume, you know, if, if, you know, this or that distinguished theater company is putting it on, you know, whether it's Harold Pinter or whatever, you know, it's going to be good and I should go, you know, I want to see mm-hmm. the new play and we got to get our orchestral audiences thinking, you know, if the LSO is doing it, it must be good. I must want to hear it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, I, I, I think, you know, we, we can get there in, in our generation and, and, you know, and if we don't, you know, we can all go work at, walmart or whatever (laughs) well well kenneth thank you so much for joining us today we've got a we've got a huge pile of stuff um to listen to is there for the 20th century symphonies are those are those available online yeah absolutely um i'm sure we can incorporate some links but uh the two that have been released on cd so far available Mm -hmm. from all good outlets as they say on spotify and that Matthew Taylor will be released early in 2020. Mm-hmm. So we've got his fifth symphony in the canon. I'm recording his fourth symphony with the National Orchestra of Wales in January. That will be out soon. Uh, all of Philip's first three symphonies are out and you know available. Um, and the fourth symphony, along with his uh, homage to Kandinsky, also comes out in 2020. So almost all of that is either out or coming out. And... Uh, you know, that will continue to be the case throughout the project that it'll all, yeah. all be available. Yeah. I mean, I'll be, I'll be keeping an eye on it for sure. And um, awesome. Again, thank you so much for, for carving out the time. And uh, are you, you're, you're in Europe, right? Yeah. We live just outside of Cardiff. My wife's a violinist in the National Orchestra of Wales. 
Okay. So she's been here since 2000. I moved over in 2003, and we live just outside of Cardiff in Panaz. So yeah, it's, it's about one o'clock here. And, uh... <laughs> oh, in the morning? No, no, no. Wine no. o'clock, not nine o'clock. Wine o'clock. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it is almost nine o'clock in the evening here, also. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thanks again. Enjoy, enjoy your wine. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for doing this. I really appreciate you with the work that goes into it. It's a, uh, it's a good thing you're doing. And, uh, well, please to thank be you so involved. Much. Great. Thanks a lot. Yeah. All the best. See ya. Cheers. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Podium Time. You can find everything in the show notes below, and please reach out if you have any suggestions for guests or improvements to the podcast. We're always striving to make Podium Time the best podcast that we can for you conductors and students, so send us a Facebook message or use the contact page on our website with any suggestions you may have. Thanks so much for listening to this episode, and we'll see you next time. Mendelssohn's Italian Symphony was performed by the Czech National Symphony Orchestra, and Beethoven's Egmont Overture was performed by Stefano Ligorati. Thank you.